Okay, welcome to the webinar and podcast for the Muslim Care Center, Muslim Food Bank and Aspire. We have Dr. Osama Alanyazi, who is a good friend and a supporter of the Muslim Care Center. And he's the founder of the Vancouver Virology Center. And he's a doctor that specializes in infectious diseases, uh, also from UBC. And maybe uh, Dr. Alanyazi, if you could uh, give your background, your credentials, um, and uh, Let's let's uh, start with your practice and Vancouver Virology Center as well. Please go ahead. I my personal background. Uh, I'm a physician who trained uh, with internal medicine residency with UBC, and I finished after that. I did an infectious diseases fellowship with UBC. Then after that, I did a fellowship in clinical virology again with UBC. Um, I did a Canadian and American board in internal medicine. Uh, currently, I, ha uh, I have a, a clinical instructor, you know, with UBC, and uh, I'm an infectious diseases and uh, internal medicine consultant working at uh, Vancouver Virology Center, which is a non-profit charitable organization. I do see consults. I do uh, see patients at the same time. I do a research and uh, I help in outreach work. And uh, specifically, I do it in downtown East Side. And I've been doing that for the last 10 years to help the unfortunate people uh, in that, uh, you know, place of our downtown. Um, and uh, my main and work is with HIV, hepatitis C, addiction, to you know, large extent also I do infectious diseases. To a lesser extent, I do uh, also internal medicine consult. And and that's amazing background and and credentials. Uh, you are an expert, especially in this era of the coronavirus and infectious diseases. I'm sure your expertise is very rare. Now, I just wanted to give a bit of background how we met. Um, we were at a, a lunch and uh, we were telling a, a group of friends about uh, the Muslim Care Center, which uh, also gives food on the downtown east side um, from the Muslim perspective and the Islamic perspective to help everybody, anyone and everybody from uh, the standpoint of giving food and, and, and uh, uh, water and, and meals to, to the people that need it. And on the downtown east side, as you're well aware, uh, many people have uh, addiction problems, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, as well as mental health problems. And a number of them do have uh, hepatitis and, and uh, HIV. And so when we were telling uh, uh, these friends of ours about the, the work we were doing with the Muslim Care Center, feeding people every day on the downtown east side, they said, oh, there's another uh, Muslim organization that's doing a better job than you guys. And it's the Vancouver Virology Center, Dr. Alan Acey. And I was like, oh, and connect us with Dr. Alanasi, and then somehow we got connected. And what was amazing was you've been doing this work for 10 years with your staff. So your practice is on Broad and Davy, and you take your staff once a week, at least before COVID, every week at your own expense, financing the cost of the testing for free for the people on the downtown east side uh, to, to give these free tests from you that you pay for to, to help uh, diagnose uh, the people on the downtown east side and help them. So I'm very impressed with your work. 
Yeah. So about that, first, like to be honest, like when I was doing it, it uh, probably you know the Muslim part in me was giving me the bush and my background and uh, uh, my childhood education, but mainly for it's for the good of it here and to the community. And I wasn't even under any Islamic umbrella since I started this. You know, we call it an outreach. You know, testing prayers. We go there and test people. Uh, you know, we were switch out, but you know, when when we are well established and we are good, we were doing it on a weekly basis. Um, so the same thing, like what uh, Tariq, brother Tariq, he said. Uh, we we did overlap on that. You know, we did meet and uh, we talk about it. We we find we have the same uh, interest in the same population. You know, like in, in Islam, in Islam, we said like, you know, every human soul, you know, it's important and to take care of it, whether it's Muslim or non-Muslim. We know from our background that uh, a lady, uh, you know, who just give a, a dog a drink and it is a soul. It's not even a human soul. She went to heaven because of that. And we are way beyond that. We are treating or trying to treat people well who is like human beings. And although they are unfortunate, they have their own challenges and they have their own uh, mental health challenges uh, and addictions. Uh, we, we don't judge people. We just treat them as a human being who need help. And we did, you know, intersect with you guys, the, the BC Muslims, uh, you know, center at the downtown east side. And I was very happy that, you know, you approached me and you asked me to work together. And since that time, because, you know, before that, we were hovering this area. There is a lot of, you know, people uh, before the Muslim uh, care center get involved, were involved with us. Like, you know, there is a place called the dugout. There is a lot of good people working there and, you know, also churches. Uh, on that area, we, we also share the same passion and the same interest. Uh, we go there before, like, you know, on a good, you know, uh, weather, like day in the summer or like even sometimes late spring, we go out and outdoors, like, and uh, we call, they, they call it like uh, the Tent City Park, for example. We go yes. in near churches, uh, food banks, the dugout, uh, and all of these people were you know, they're welcome enough and warm enough to allow us to, you know, be in their area. Uh, and that's been for years until like, you know, in the last year, exactly, we met you guys and we start also, we have a almost, I call it a headquarter and we have a foot there, a place, because I cannot afford to rent a place there or like establish it there. I'm already paying my bills on my, we call the Vancouver Virology Center, which is um, a clinic on Davy and Broad in the middle of the downtown. And I took my team with my own SUV. And my team is me, my the people who work with me in the office. And we have a beautiful bunch of volunteers who is interested also to help these people. And most of them, you find them, they have a scientific background or the people who is willing to go in medicine. And they come and help us on how to test people. And I find it a good opportunity to teach these people how to screen them for their addiction and risk of overdose to save their lives by 
engaging them back in healthcare and bring them to our office through screening them by doing a questionnaire. At the same time, also we screen them for the risk of HIV or hepatitis C and check if they have any of these diseases and get them also engaged in our healthcare uh, system and to my clinic or other clinics and get them treated. Because, you know, in HIV, we have good medication that's gonna control, you know, the disease. Nobody should die at this time of the, you know, band or, or, you know of the epidemic of HIV. And, uh, and this, this, work, this work that you've done, and, and I think every week you would be there on the downtown east side with your staff and treating how many people would you treat on a, on, on, on a weekly basis of your so own I, expense I with average, your own team? Yeah, it's an average, we are talking about 30 patients. I would say call them people because they are not patient until we screen them and know who's who's and what is what. And also, I just want to add, we find who's hepatitis C because we know hepatitis C become a curable disease. I can cure it. The new medication can cure up to, you know, 94 to 99% of the people who have that. So people also shouldn't be dying from hepatitis C anymore. You know, because so, so you've saved it. some lives. You've saved lives on the downtown east side with the work that you did. I guess so. I guess so. If, you know, these guys are engaged, and uh, we try to help them. And you know, that's what we are trying. You know, we are trying to also continue, and we give them incentives also, like you know, because part of the it's acceptable when people do research, and this is a research part also because use this information to do a research, we give them Tim Horton cards. And uh, uh, that's our incentive. And, and that day also we give some juices, uh, chips, and uh, let me recall what we use the juices, maybe pops at one point. Uh, we, we use that from time to time. And when you said you are solely funded by me, no, it's like mostly it's me, most of the time. I'll say to up to 95% the whole project is sponsored by me because from time to time, if we are lucky, you know, a few of the drug companies will participate on, you know, helping this project. Uh, and, uh, you know, it didn't happen for a long time now, but they did in the historical, uh, you know, time. But it's and, mainly and, by me, yes. And you did this week in, week out for 10 years uh, up until the pandemic was when we had to pause because of obvious reasons. But, uh, but for 10 years, that, that shows such commitment and such dedication and helping our community. So I, I will applaud you for, for that great work because very impressive. And I know we're gonna collaborate together once the, the, uh, the pandemic's over, but uh, in the meantime, that 10 years of work, uh, I'm sure you did a lot of good there. And, and that yeah, brings so me my, to- my, my, see, my vision was like, you know, to keep doing that. At one point, is going to be picked up by one of the health authorities because you know, I, I, you know, I, I said there is a saying: if if uh, the mountain cannot come to Muhammad, Muhammad go to the mountain. There is a saying, like you know, and in another way, if if the mountain cannot go to Muhammad, Muhammad go to the mountains. And these guys, I call them, the, you know, the guys in downtown East Side. They are the mountains of Vancouver. These guys, they they, they this is their comfort zone. This is their place. I don't expect somebody who have a mental disease, mental health issues, or like have addictions to come to me in my, you know, clinic to ask for help. So we have to go and help them there in their comfort zone. 
without judging them and show them that we can come to you and help you there. And that, believe me, that touched them from inside. And, you know, these guys, we did see people who changed and he start, they start to come to the clinic and become part of our like patients and they did change. And, you know, if you find somebody at risk of overdosing or he did overdose and somebody helped him before, because these guys, at the end, at one point, they need a, an opioid replacement therapy, which is, thanks God, we are in a place and a province that give it for them for free, for free. Nobody is paying that bill, but just need them to engage. If I give somebody his dose of opioid, he doesn't have to go to the street and buy from the street because you don't know what they are buying from the street and that can kill them at one point. And because, you know, I'm a physician, I know what I'm giving and how much the dose and I give it in a safe way and I increase their dose in a safe way until they get in a comfort zone that let them satisfy from inside. They don't ask for more drugs and they don't buy things from the street because they, you know, sell things bad in the street now and can kill people, especially with the people who are not having experience young people who go to experiment there and they end up overdosing. And we have thousands, we lost thousands of these people in the downtown east side until and the date I'm talking, since the beginning of that, you know, opioid crisis. And uh, your and work and your work is, is not just screening for HIV and hepatitis, is but to help the people with the opioid addiction, which again, the Vancouver downtown east side is the center of the opioid epidemic in North America the most per capita people overdosing and dying of, of fentanyl and, and opioids. So your work is by being a professional uh, infectious diseases and, and expert to, to basically help people from a medical standpoint, wean them off their, their addiction to opioids. I, I can easily say that we will die more from opioid than COVID-19 here in Vancouver. Easily wow. I can say that. I'm so confident in saying that. So yeah. we are like, we should look at all aspects of people's health to help them. At the end, the final cause is dying. So if we die from COVID-19 or like opioid or HIV or Hep C, I think they die more out of opioid, you know, overdoses. So if I have money and resources, I'll put it on that. Because at the end, you, your take is to save lives. So people like, we, we forget about that part and the funding sometimes go for other things, everything is important, but also you should be aware about the statistics and how many people are dying. So somebody has to do the job, whether me or somebody else, whether health authorities. Yeah. So my vision was try to keep continuing that until catch up by health authorities and other places and even Canada to adopt this system. Because these guys don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them. You have to get down and go to them. And you would have your, your, your table on the sidewalk and you would have your, your tent and, and your canopy and, and basically be there on the street where the people is. As you know, the downtown east side, there's so many people crowding around uh, certain streets. So you would be right there in the mix and, and they would come to your table. And so one is hepatitis and, and HIV screening, but the other is to help them to wean them off uh, their opioid addiction with the with, uh, uh, proven uh, treatments that that you would help them with i think you said in a very good way that's exactly what we are doing that's exactly and, and, what and, we are doing. and this is the biggest thing because addiction requires medical help i think a lot of people and this is just just regular people that are not doctors like yourself think people choose addiction 
they, that, oh, it's, it's their fault. And what happens, people just get addicted and they can't get off because they're biologically addicted to these substances and they need a professional like yourself to help them get off these chemicals in, in, in a scientific way, in a medical way. So sometimes, like, see, first let's leave judgment to God. All of us, including me, will be judged by the God only, the one and the only. So we shouldn't be judging people at all. Yes. Like, this is like an Islamic concept. Let's leave it yes. to God. So these guys, they are unfortunate. You grow up in a good family. I grew up in a family who probably doesn't have an action or anything. But these guys, if, if, you, if you grow up in downtown East Side and you find maybe your mother or father is having addiction problem, your friends, and, you know, you know, as you said, like, the likelihood, and, and if you're raised on that area, there is a high likelihood you're going to be involved in drugs somehow. That's how it is. So these guys are just being unfortunate. So if you get the baby from there and put it somewhere else, so it's very unlikely to be a drug addict. He will be probably just a, another normal person. And, and one so, of our volunteers at the Muslim Care Center, like he was addicted to opioids and fentanyl. And he was on the downtown east side. And he was afraid that if he stopped the opioid, he was afraid of the, uh, the withdrawal, the withdrawal uh, pains. And, and I think with the, the treatment you would provide is to help minimize the withdrawal, correct? To help them. Exactly. As last month, even like that, we probably will not even, you know, let them feel the withdrawal. Do you know what's the withdrawal? You'll be, your body physically is used to a substance and even mentally. So when you stop it, abrupt it, this is not the way to go off opioids. This is not the right way. Because if you're going to go on like withdrawal, severe like uh, headaches, body aches, diarrhea, you know, even if it is opioid, you know, these things, uh, not feeling, it's not, he will not very, you know, will be a happy camper, as they call him. He will not. So he'll go use again to get him off these feelings. So what we do as a physician, first we give them, you know, start to give them the drugs. We go, you know, up slowly until we get into a level that he's satisfied from inside. He doesn't need any external drugs. Then try to maintain that for a period. When he's feeling well, then we start to taper it back again, but slowly. Imagine you are on 100-something milligrams. If you go to 95, you'll not feel it. Then 90, then slowly you go down until you reach him to the point like he's in a minimal drug. Then at that time, physically, he doesn't need it but still maybe mentally attached. So we still also cancel him and, you know, mentally until he detached slowly, like, you know, like a baby, when you get him off, you know, breastfeeding or anything, we have to do it slowly and be patient with him until he gets him completely off it. And you'll see that it's people who have, you know, there is in the, even the Canadian history. I, I did, you know, when I came to Canada, I was impressed about the story of the guy who was owning the second cup. He was, his addiction was alcohol. It's a very impressive story. If you go search it out and see how he started, he was just a guy who was an alcoholic. He's sleeping in the second the, cup uh, coffee chain. The second cup yes, coffee chain. The guy yes. who established it. That the guy. Got it. He was he was an alcoholic. If you look at go on you know Google his story, it's impressive. He was that guy. He said I was you know um, found by you know some these Christian guys who's religious and try to help him to get off the alcohol. And to the limit, he said, at one point, he was giving me coins, you know, quarters or whatever at that time. He gave me coins. He said, when you feel you want to drink, just give me a call. 
So you got to come and escort him and be with him to support him because that's what we need. We need somebody at when everybody give support. Yeah, give him support. support. So at that time, he started to get him off alcohol. Then that friend told him, why we don't do a small business for you, a business, anything. And he said, okay, what are we going to do? And, and he said, let's do your, like a coffee shop in one of these malls to sell coffee. And then he said, then he gave me the $1 million idea. And he said, what? And we're going to sell it with that much. And he said, why it's expensive? And he said, we're going to claim it's the best coffee. It's a coffee, you know, but we're going to claim our coffee is the best coffee. That's how they yes. started. And he said, this was the start of it. Then they start to sell an expensive coffee because it's the best. They claim it's the best. Then they start the second cup chain. And then this alcoholic guy, he become now a rich guy, by the way. He's a very lead guy. And he said, he come to me at one point and he told me, you know, we get a split. And he came with his lawyer with a big check I couldn't resist. And he said, I took the check and left. And he started to do his own businesses. This guy is a multimillionaire now. See, so, this is a guy so it shows support. It, it, it shows support, and and what what you do by showing support, because now, as you know, many Muslims in our community are sadly alcoholics, also drug addicted. Uh, we had one of our uh, somebody I knew uh, from childhood uh, within our family. He was released from prison, and uh, he was in jail for thirty two years. And uh, he just died of a drug overdose. Uh, I think he just didn't know how to cope and he didn't have the support. But for, let's say, the Muslim community that is dealing with drug addiction or alcohol addiction, if, if, if they were to come to you, how would you treat them? How would you help them? I help them like everybody else. I don't judge people. I will help them. But it didn't care about that. I'm so just the thousands to help anybody. The thousands of people that you've helped literally get off drugs and alcohol addiction. Your treatment. I will not say they get off because you know addiction is a chronic disease, yes. but you make them at least stable. Yes. Stable. They don't overdose, they don't die. Yes. And you keep them in your there. You understand this concept about addiction. Addiction is a chronic disease. Yes. A chronic disease. Like yes. diabetes, like hypertension. Yes. You will see a successful story, but it's rare. Yes. Because it needs a multidisciplinary team. You need a lot of effort, not only, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be the team alone, the one and the all, which is, you know, I'm trying to manage, but I can't. You know, you need a nurse, you need a counselor, you need, all this should be all in, under one umbrella, but this needs a lot of funding. So, to fund so these what, under health authorities because they have funding. So what do you mean they by multidisciplinary? You know, to pay a salary for, salary for a, uh, an outreach nurse or like a counselor, a full-time counselor. This needs money. This needs money. Because you have to treat the whole individual. One is the biological yes. addiction, yes. but then there's the psychological and there's the exactly. human aspect. So it requires a layered treatment. Exactly. It needs a multidisciplinary team. It needs a team. I'm trying to be the team, which is like as much as they can do, but I fail, you know, sometimes. I cannot. I'm fortunate if the patient have a big motive from inside. I'm fortunate. So it helped me a lot. Because he will do that part on his, yeah, because if he asks me for counselor or counselor, so he has to find his own or try at least try to tell him to go to one of the counselors under the health authority. And we, we also, with the Muslim Care Center, you haven't met them. We have some addictions counselors and we'll introduce you to them. And so maybe as part of the team, because you're, you're the medical expert and we can 
work to bring the the experts within uh, our community that are counselors and and uh, social workers that can help uh, uh, the community need of the individual. So I think I think maybe uh, you and I in a future kind of time when we meet, we can discuss how to cooperate there. Yeah, I heard about this effort. I'm, I'm one one of them in the in the even the WhatsApp group. We have a group together, and I think. But you know, when we met you guys just just before the COVID nineteen, when yes. everything went down, you know, it's like because for the, you know, you know, safety always first, like safety of my team and safety of Absolutely. the patients. So we don't encourage gathering now. Even me, it's tough to do the outreach work because you don't want to be able to gather in this like even now. With with the cold season, with the peak, and in, in the in the middle of a pandemic, there is a Corona pandemic, COVID nineteen. I don't think so. It's a wise thing to continue doing now, at least until Agreed. things get safe. You know, and I I I believe it's gonna be soon. Things gonna be changed again. So on that note, um, we we uh, you had the coronavirus. Now maybe for those that don't know. If you could explain what I got the coronavirus it. I is. I have it. I don't have it in my pocket now. I got it at one point as a patient. But I as have a it, so I don't have it now. But you had it. You had it like months ago, I, I remember. It, yeah, not yes. have it, yes. And, 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 and what, what, or t- tell us your experience and what, what is the coronavirus and what does it do to the body? Just for the people that don't know what the coronavirus is. Okay, so now we're going science. So coronavirus is one of the seasonal vi- viruses. There is a lot of viruses they always get, you know, more infection and we will get more infection in the cold season, which is like from October to the end of spring. So usually these infections get more and get less during the summer. And it's not only Corona, there's Corona, there's influenza, there's bottom influenza, there's RSV virus, there's rhinovirus. So I can name there is a lot. And these guys or these families, we call them like, you know, these groups, they call them seasonal viruses. They increase in the cold season, they get less. Why in the cold season? I believe because in the cold season, what happened, people, it's a cold outside, yeah? So where do we go? We stop going outdoor, we go indoors, then we get closer to each other, you know? Why? Because it's cold outside. So cafes, in the summer we sit outside, but now we're going to go inside because it's too cold. So, and these, you know, viruses feed, you know, on being close to each other. So that's Physical distance is very important, you know. This is very important to, you know, to if you want to prevent this infection. So I think the most important thing is physical distance. You know, why I don't infect you now, Tarek, and use it? Because you are far away from me. The closer we get together, then there is a chance we're going to get infected. So two meters is a safe distance. When it gets closer than that, when we hit the one meter marker, then this is, a, you know, we start to be a higher risk because it's a droplet infection and a contact infection. So we get a, when we speak to each other, we, we, we cannot see them, but sometimes your droplets gonna be scattered around. So now after like, you know, getting less than two meters and getting less than one meter, then the mask get another way of prevention uh, and preventing the disease. So masks get important here. When it gets closer to than that, then it's touching each other because we have a day-to-day things like I touch your thing, give me your ID, give me the credit card to do that transaction. Now we start to touch each other. Now the hand washing gets important, which is we said, wash your hand with with soap and uh, water for 20 seconds at least. That's enough. 
And if that's not available, you know, there is a hand sanitizer, the alcohol-based one, you can use one, you know, and that's it. If you do these things and become religious at them, that's enough to make you safe and, you know, prevent you from getting COVID-19. So again, guys, go on, don't get close to each other as much as you can. If we can meet together like now, see, we did meet on Zoom, you know, meeting. We didn't need to come because if I come to you guys, there is a risk we might, you know, somebody affect each other. But just to tell you the story, the good, the irony and things, I got it confirmed because I got it and, you know, my symptoms start on the 23rd of March. I think Tarek and Yusuf, because they travel and they consult me on the phone, they talk to me because they came from London with these symptoms. And I told them, likely at that time you got it, but they don't have a confirmed, you know, result. So just isolate themselves because it's a self-limiting disease, guys. When you have it, most of the people gonna go by itself. If you are young, healthy, you don't have chronic disease, you don't have obesity, your chance of dying from this thing is very minimal. It's very rare. I'll say 0.2%, two in a thousand. But as you get older and you have chronic, you know, all people, they have also chronic diseases. And some people have obesity. These guys are at higher risk. So for these people, we don't want to be selfish. It's, it's a self-responsibility. Osama can get infected, you know. Most likely he will not die from it because he's young, he doesn't have chronic disease, he's not obese. But it's my responsibility not to transmit it to these people at higher risk to die from it. So if you suspect you have something, you just isolate yourself. Just stay at home for 10 days, good 10 days, and you can get out after that safely. But if I go and visit other people during my sickness, you know, likely I'm going to infect other people, and probably they are predisposed, you know, to it more than me and might die from it. That's how it is. It's not and, that scary. And but, what you does know, it do? Unlucky people. Hmm? What does it do to the body? What is the coronavirus doing? Like, okay, uh, it's what... a virus first. The, the, you know, it, the, the family, the corona family, it's known to cause, we call it upper respiratory tract infection. Upper respiratory tract infection, you know, throat and up. So you might have sore throat, you have a fever, you have a headache, maybe burning eyes. You, you lose like, you know, you, you know your smell uh, in, uh, or taste ability during the COVID-19, you know, infection. This is the upper respiratory part. That's also with the, with the corona whole family. But we find something unique about COVID-19. It can hit you with the lower respiratory tract infection symptoms. Like, for example, when it hits your lungs, which is inflammation of the lungs and which is going to be a shortness of breath and cough and sputum coming out. Most likely to be dry, but sometimes it also involves sputum coming out. So this is the thing. Here is the dangerous part when it goes to your lungs we find COVID-19 can cause trouble. So it can cause respiratory failure, which is failing of your lungs to exchange oxygen and ability to have oxygen inside your body and deliver it to the tissue. And here is the dangerous happen. And sometimes it also causes this inflammation in your body and affect other parts of your body, like the kidneys and be the heart also. You know, and these you know, systems, if they fail, they can also cause death. Or then also we call it a hypercoagulable state, 
which is mean it's the ability of this virus to make blood clots on your body. So if you have it in your heart, you're going to end up having a heart attack. If you have it in your brain, you have a stroke. If it is have it in your lungs, we have a blood clot in your lungs, kind of, you know, we call it pulmonary embolism, you know, and, you know, you cannot breathe after that. So this is how it can damage people through these mechanisms. It can be simple, like some people, most of the people are asymptomatic. They don't even have symptoms. So other people now, can have mild symptoms. 20% of them, of the people, can have symptoms that let them go to the hospital. And 5% of the people can end up in the ICU who's having COVID-19. And like these people, we say it again, all people, obese people, people with, you know, chronic diseases. And, I don't and know do if you I find, it very well or something. No, no, I, I think that was very well. And do you find, like, before actually... Uh, as the pandemic was starting, um, at, at least becoming uh, uh, more of a serious uh, threat in Canada and the U.S., um, the government of Kuwait invited you to consult because you're an expert and, and you went to Kuwait to consult the government and other governments in the Middle East about uh, uh, coronavirus because that is your expertise. If you could just talk about how you helped uh, uh, countries in the Middle East uh, with your consultation. Yeah, first, like, uh, it was voluntary thing by me. Uh, at the beginning, nobody invited me at the beginning. Nobody invited me, but because I'm, you know, Middle Eastern, I have, I'm, a, I'm also from Kuwait. So uh, I, you know, and I have some people I know in the Minister of Health there. So I, you know, tell them, hey, guys, it's, uh, it's my specialty. And because we have a lot of people specialized in this disease here in Canada, they're gonna help. I volunteered there, and I went there personally twice on the month of February, at the beginning of it and the end of it, uh, just to help with this, you know, problem. And in January, it was, you know, by phone calls and things, and try to uh, try to help my uh, country of origin there to show them the way and what's, you know, what to do, what's the next step what you know um what strategies to implement there to try to help you know people with fighting the COVID 19 pandemic and to get with the least damage there and also i you know went to a neighboring country like qatar and they i did uh, i think three interviews on the tv there and trying to educate people and talk about it and after coming back on you know, to Canada on the 1st of March, uh, you know, at that time, you know, all the flights and things being canceled, nobody can, you know, leave or, you know, you know, it's, it's become a global pandemic and most of countries, including Canada, uh, they closed their flights and I have to stay where I was practicing mainly in, in, in here in Canada, but I didn't, you know, lose my connection with my, you know, uh, people in Kuwait because we continue doing things either like you know meetings online like these ones and educating people or talking to the officials you know and contacting them to tell them what the best strategies as we go along and even implementing laws like you know uh, putting fines and penalties on wearing masks and social distancing maintaining social distancing and also implementing uh, 
a law about punishing people who is not obeying, um, you know, the self-isolation because we didn't have a, a law about that at that time. And I asked for it. And thank God it's been implemented by the government and being voted okay by the, you know, parliament and uh, signed by His Highness the Emir at that time and become the law in Kuwait. And Kuwait, Kuwait was yeah. the the first country that that did a lockdown. The first country in the Middle East and the Gulf to do a lockdown. Yeah. It's actually one of my recommendations there. That's uh, I do it. And uh, there is so many things happen, like first advising to stop any flights or any people coming from China. Then uh, uh, trying, to, I did talk to them about that. You know total lockdown but they did a partial one at the beginning then we end up doing that total lockdown and uh, they did the longest maybe which is i don't recommend but that's what happened end up uh, because you know at the end they 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 take the decision not me i'm just advising there and it's just a voluntary job and uh, i'm not paid and, to do that by the way and and now now we're here now that was back march and uh, january february march and april now we're almost December 2020, and it seems like there's some good news with vaccines, with Pfizer and other companies. So yeah. let's talk about solutions and when this pandemic can, can, we, can be over. You, uh, Tarek, sorry for something. Let's go back to March. Let's see. For, yes. uh, from a personal you know, experience, what happened with the COVID, my own experience being COVID-19, other than being like, you know, it's my job and, and I'm an expert in that, and that's my speciality. I become a patient. Yes. probably explaining things there it's, it's also good for other people to hear uh, you know please, my experience please. being a patient at the same time a physician first like i've been seeing patients you know and at that time if everybody go back to mars uh, we i didn't have masks at that time and i did uh, try to do my best because you know even uh, there is advice from people close your clinic you don't have even masks because I tried to buy them from, uh, you know, private, you know, sellers, pharmacies and things I couldn't find. I went to hospitals and health authorities like St. Paul Hospital and asked them for masks. They said, we don't have enough. We have only masks for our own use. We cannot give away nothing. So I have to, and I couldn't leave my patients just like that. And I continue to see patients, which is, you know, at that time, even my, my medical building, it's called Broad Medical Building, become a ghost building. Probably I was probably the only one or two, two people open at that time because people have all the right to be scared and running away because nobody knows what's going on and what they are facing. And I was still opening at that time and trying to help people with their medical, but I didn't wear masks because I didn't have it. It's not available. Until one day, like uh, in uh, March, mid-March, I, I did see a patient, and I, to my feeling and my experience, looked like he had COVID-19. I am not sure, because at, uh, at that time, even we didn't have swaps to test people at that time. It wasn't available in Canada, by the way. Uh, maybe it's very limited, but it's, it's not easy to have one. And I did see a patient, I, to me, it looked like it's a COVID-19, maybe. It's, it's just because, you know, I. You know, the safest thing to do in this situation to tell that person, go and self-isolate yourself. Because we don't know, you know, to be safe, what's the safest thing here? Because we don't have a diagnosis. Go as, treat yourself as COVID-19 for the public safety. Stay at home and 
you know, he's a young guy. So likely your odds is very low again if something happens. If you have a shortness of breath, if you start to experience, which is I call it a lower respiratory tract infection symptoms, and this is like here is like when you need to go to the hospital, the approach, then go to the emergency department if you couldn't breathe. But other than that, fever and things get a subside or a cough, a mild cough, and he was having mild symptoms. So I thought like maybe, maybe it is because the place is, is a, and the place and the time is a pandemic. So maybe I wasn't sure. Then a week after exactly on the 23rd of March, I was in the middle of seeing patients, you know, to the middle of the day, you know, after like, you know, noon, now by two-ish, three-ish, I start to have a fever, headache, body aches and things. And the things, the first thing crossed my mind. I said, first look what's going on. Until I start to have the fever, because you start to have headache and, you know, burning eyes. I didn't have cough or anything. I didn't have a response to type, but I don't know what is that. But when I start to have a fever, no, it crossed my mind. Maybe this is a, a corona, COVID-19. Maybe I got it. Maybe that guy was a COVID-19. And see, see, this is the social distancing here and the mask and things. Maybe I got it. So on, uh, on that day, and even... After having these symptoms, a patient came to me uh, and knocked the door, and I said, get away. And he said, what? He, I said, I want to see. He said, just get away. I have a fever. I don't know what I have. Just for your safety, just get away. And get away. By the way, that guy didn't even get infected. None of my patients, by the way, get infected. And uh, so I went home. I stayed a little bit longer than usual at about 7, 7 something. I left because I thought like if there is any chance anybody in the building, it's not there anymore. So I went to my own car. I called my wife. I said, I'm heading to my bedroom. I'm going to isolate myself. She said, why? I said, I have a fever, a headache and things. Maybe I have COVID-19. And by the way, just tell you the nature of the disease. I know I have the symptoms now, but I've been infectious before that. So my family and my mind, they got it already. They, most likely, might be not, but most likely. And that's what was the scenario. So I went in my room, isolated myself for a couple of days, and we did the Google search where I should, you know, make sure that I did have COVID-19 or not, or I'm just imagining things. And I called my family physician. He knows what I is going on. I said it most likely. And we Google, and at that time, it was just a new... Uh, instruction by the Vancouver Coastal Health, they put a place to test healthcare worker who is dealing with high-risk people because at that time they did ha have a few outbreaks on uh, long-term facilities, you know, that serve all people. Uh, and it was like, you know, they've been transmitted to them by healthcare worker, whether nurses or physicians. So if they established a place somewhere, you know, I think Heather was, the, I don't know what's the name of that place. It was a street Heather and, you know, across from uh, Elizabeth Park, you know, uh, Elizabeth Park. So that's a drive-through place. So I Google it is there. So I went there on the 25th of March. So at that day, by the way, I have no fever. My symptoms is gone and I feel okay. And I went there with my car saying to them, hey, I am a physician. They saw my ID, it's only for physicians. It's right, so what do you, while you are here, I have symptoms two days ago, I have fever, I have that, I have that. 
and they said, okay, let's just test you. And I told them I'm, I'm also helping high-risk people, which is immunocompromised patients. So I want to make sure that, because at that time they were looking for people who's serving in nursing home or like, you know, elderly places. And I said, but I'm the same situation. And they said, what? I said, I'm, I'm looking after high-risk people, which is immunocompromised. And they said, yeah. And they swapped my nose and I left that place with a hope I will have a positive test because I think that's what it is. And next day they call me and they said, no, you have a negative test. See, see, this is the thing. If even the test, sometimes they fail you. So they fail in me and they said, no, it is negative. You don't have. And I was, you know, talking to my other specialist at St. Paul Hospital, my friend. And I told him the story. I'm now in no sentence and it's negative. And he said, oh, don't imagine things, Sam, and not you. Because at that time, we don't have a lot of cases even COVID-19. You are imagining things. Maybe it's another influenza because we have somebody like you. We admit him to the St. Paul Hospital. We test him it's job to be influenza B. It's not, you know, COVID-19. Don't imagine things. And, you know, my family physician had the results. And he told me, okay, you're safe to go to work back again. It's not COVID-19. We have a test now. It's not, now I was, presuming I was suspecting I was thinking from my specialty and you know like there is a test and I went back to work and at that time even my assistant she was dismissed I dismissed her so I went alone and I start to see patient I think in the 26-7 so after if I did the the test on the 25th 26th they told me again so probably the 27th I was there so I start to see patients who call and things but it's not much of them anyway, because of everybody hiding at that time. And uh, uh, and I have my cell phone, most of my patients know my cell phone, call me if they want to see me, things done by phone, I finish them. If they want to see me personally, they come. And the, you know, at that time, I was having a negative with a medical advice, I don't have COVID-19. But there is something from inside tell me, no, let's just, you know, just treat yourself as maybe COVID-19. So I start to, you know, because at that time also they want a healthcare worker, they don't want to lose them. So even the guidelines say that if you are negative for uh, COVID-19, the Vancouver cost of health instruction, you can go the next day to the shift. So I was there, but when I, I was keeping the door open and asking my patient when they come, they stay at the door and I'm, you know, across the counter from them and my assistant plays and try to then why you are here. No, I'm being tested negative, but just to be careful, like, you know, I just want to keep distance because I don't know, I'm feeling well now, but I don't know what's happening. Just so to I keep everyone do... safe. Keep yeah, yeah, everyone yeah, safe. Like exactly. That's what I was doing. If you ask me why, I don't know why. It's just something, I, I have no symptoms now. I have a test say you are negative. I have professionals that say, no, you don't have it. But something from inside said, Sam, I just keep this distance. Just tell you, like, what's importance of distance. And at that time, again, I don't have masks. I don't have masks. Neither my patient have masks. So we keep that distance, which is about two meters between each other, finish their things, whatever they want, blood work, prescription, you give it to them. They left. And you know, on the 30th of that month, which is 30th of March, during work, I start to have symptoms again. What's going on? Like, you know, which is again, I start to have fever. Which is weird. I start to think as part of my specialty, what's going on, Osama? Is this is, we call it secondary bacteria infection. So if I have any virus on the 23rd, can be any virus, 
COVID-19 or not, okay? And if, if it is a flu virus, is the Ryan, I don't know what virus hit me at that, you know, the 23rd. So there is a concept in infectious disease we call secondary bacterial infection. You can get bacteria after being hit by a virus because when you have a virus, it's gonna, you know, disrupt your epithelium, the lining in your mouth and nose and things. It's gonna cause, you know, scratches and things on them, part of the pipe. It's opening, then bacteria can get in and can have a bacterial infection. We call it secondary bacterial infection. So I was also thinking about that. Maybe it is a, a, a secondary bacterial infection because after one week from having COVID-19, you are not infectious anymore. Some people say the 10 days, some people work because they, they isolate for a week. There's countries isolate for a week, some countries isolate for 10 days. So I was thinking, but in my mind, I said, then, but what is this virus? If it is, was in the COVID-19, why not I go again and swab myself? So the next day I went to swab myself again and try to instruct the people who do the swab how to do it exactly and tell them like how to do it and how deep they can go inside my nose to you know they have to go deep it's about like you know about four inches about seven centimeters and to make sure that they and i told them don't be worried about my feelings or anything just do it the right way because at that time i'm just curious to know what's the virus i've been with before because even covid we know with covid 19 some people even they become positive for that even two and three months after that. So I believe you are infectious up to a week after that, then after that, no, from my you know knowledge. But there is people who come to me now, that's my question as a part of my specialty. People are positive with COVID-19 swab for two months after they get infected. One month, they are asymptomatic, but they're still positive. Why? Because there is a remnant part of the virus still there because the half-life Half of the life of the cells in your nose is three months. So imagine you can be even positive for three months, but doesn't mean you have it. It's there, part of the virus, part of the RNA of the virus, you know, which is the nucleic acid of the virus. It doesn't mean you are having it. So I test myself and on the 31st, on the 1st of April, maybe, maybe it's like one day before, they call me and they told me, oh, you are positive for COVID-19. Then I said, yes, that's what I'm thinking. So the virus, I got it at the beginning. It was that. Then I told the nurse who called me, who's my, you know, I've been then exposed on that period from the 20, I think, 6 or 7. I'm not sure with the date because I can check them out. It's roughly, I'm mistaken by one day. To the date... You know, I the date just before I go and do the test, there's, I, I didn't been exposed to patients. And then we are like to take care of them. Me and the nurse from the public health and the uh, public health office, and they call me and they want the uh, their names now. And I told them everything in the office. And they asked me to bring it. I said, I have no staff there because of the COVID-19, everybody running away. So I said, the... Can we, we wait until we finish the isolation, which is 10 days from the 23rd, from the beginning of the sentence, then I can go and bring these things and we get an agreement of that. And then that day, the health, public health officer talked to me that, yeah, 
she did the math and said, yeah, you are okay to go day today. It was the 11th day. And I went to the office also and get all the names, put them their names, their phone numbers, their healthcare numbers, their birthdays, and fax them to the public health you know, officers and their nurse. And to be just the iron in the story, none of them get infected. See, this is the importance. None of my patients got COVID-19 from me. So that's the, the good news. So that tell you what's the importance of the two meter distance between people. I got it from a patient, probably it wasn't that distance between us at that time, because we are in the same room. It was, you know, close contact apparently. And uh, my patient was saved, I'll say by God. They were lucky also, none of us. And I'm, I'm very happy from inside, none of my patients got infected by me, which is, that's, that's great. And, and we were lucky. And, and although and, they are immunocompromised people. And, and what's amazing is I've come across, and I'm sure you've come across a lot of people uh, when I tell them that I had the coronavirus as well. Many people have never met anyone with the coronavirus. So uh, I guess we're some of the few people that have had this and have gotten through it and, and recovered. So, but, but now getting to- But again, about you, Tarek, you didn't have yes. a test. I didn't have a test. You have it? And my, uh, my thinking most likely got it, but yes. I have no proof in you. Yes, exactly. By but the way, I, Tarek, Tarek is not my patient. He just asked yes. me as a friend. I yes, don't have exactly. a file for him. He's not my patient, by the way. Exactly. Now, going, going back to, we're going to go right into uh, the vaccine. And we're at December 2020. And so since March to all these months later, uh, tell, tell us, uh, based on the vaccines, um, Pfizer, um, uh, there's a vaccine from Russia, uh, other companies. I know the Canadian government is, is also consulting on how to get the vaccine out to uh, the population here in Canada. Um, if you could just discuss uh, the efficacy of these vaccines, if that's known, and when life can come back to normal, uh, in your opinion, based on what you're seeing with the medical evidence and, and vaccines that are currently out there. Okay, first we should know what's going to get us out mainly out of this pandemic is the basic cheap prevention majority, which is physical distancing, wash your hands, and wear a mask. Because that you should continue doing it even after we have the vaccine. But we are lucky enough to have vaccines, which is done in a few months. When the Moderna publication about their phase, uh, uh, phase one publication and their research part, on July 2020, they were they they said this is almost six years work. We did it in six months because usually we take years to do vaccines. So we should know always in any vaccine we should make sure that it is safe and at the same time it's efficient. So you don't want a, a safe vaccine, but it's not efficient. Doesn't prevent you from having COVID-19. Or we have an efficient one prevents you from having COVID-19, but it's not safe, can cause you like severe side effects and harm. Because the whole idea, we are trying to prevent you having COVID-19 and die at the end or having permanent damage from the COVID-19. So the vaccine shouldn't be causing harm like that, permanent damage or die from it. 
So what happened, these you know, companies start to be in a race to have the vaccine, other than to save the humanity. You know, it's a financial thing. These guys are gonna make money out of it, which is okay. It's like, you know, they're doing us a service. As long as it works. At the same time, they're gonna make money. It's a loss of work. Yes, exactly. They're investing a lot of effort, you know, science, uh, infrastructure, factories to make these things. It's, it's nothing easy here. But uh, I think they are doing an excellent job to save the humanity. And almost all the governments, including Canada, USA, Europe, they are funding these companies with billions just to let them do it. Because, you know, life cannot continue like that. We need to go to our normal life back again. We are do- what we are doing, we call it the new, the new normal. That's the, the one we are doing now. But we want to go back to our life back again. So the vaccines will be one of the important tools to do that. Because, you know, to you know, control a virus, you need to reach the herd immunity. The herd immunity, after, either it's like naturally we get infected by the COVID-19 and then we inherit immunity from it. But the risk of that, if you get infected, you might die. I almost died from it. I was very sick from it. I, I've been admitted to the hospital with a whole week. You know, I admitted from the, you know, early morning of the 6th of April, which is, you know, after midnight exactly, to the, I think the 12th, six days. Yeah. But I was very sick in a high flow oxygen and I lost six, six kilos in that. I was in very bad shape. If you tell me, is that to be the case with COVID-19? No, most of the people will be okay and they have mild symptoms. There is few unlucky people for whatever reason they can't suffer from it. I was one of them. And thanks God I'm here between you guys again to talk about it. And so to either get it the natural way because you don't want you don't want to do that because you might be end up like me or even a worst scenario, people with a permanent damage. I have a damage in my lungs by the way out of it. Like we have a moderate lung damage in my myself. But I'm I recover very well from it. Some people die. So you don't want to experience having the herd immunity through natural infection. Let's put that aside. It's not an, a good option. Like it's been done with Sweden. The Sweden, they opened all the things. They didn't do any restriction. This is infected everybody, but they, they've been hit hard because they have the highest mortality, which is mean a lot of people will die. Per capita. In to other Scandinavian countries, their neighbors, yes. because they took measures to that. They, they, they adopted the herd immunity strategy and that they end up like, you know, one of the highest mortalities ever. But the best, you know, strategies to do, you know, the prevention, which is mask, keep distance, wash your hand, and to try to get herd immunity through vaccination. This is the other way of doing it, which is safer. If the vaccine show up to be safe. And until now, these reports saying it's safe, but we don't have the official published research and peer-reviewed articles. That's how we you know, get our opinion. Like, for example, the Pfizer one, the CEO of the company went out and said it's good and, you know, and say, by the way, you don't get, I'm jumping from things to things, but this is how, because too many things to tell about. To get any vaccine approved, you have to pass phase three. We said phase one, there is phase two, they finish. They start phase three in July, and now we are in November, they finish phase three, but they're still collecting the data and information. They're, even the first time, you know, at the beginning or uh, 
the beginning of November when the CEO of Pfizer came out and he said our vaccine is good as efficient as 90%, he said. But we're still collecting data. And after collecting more data, after a week from that, he went out and he said, oh, we are 94% efficient. So you see the numbers, when he said it's not final, the numbers, I thought like it's going to be maybe even going down. So that reason is too mature to say, oh, it is that number. So let's wait for the final data to get together and reviewed by their own internal investigator. This is how they do it. And also external investigator from the FDA and things they review it with them and to get that data at the end. And as a specialist, we're gonna read it and judge it and see if it is safe enough and how much efficient it is promising, but we're gonna wait. And all the governments are watching and we have our own bodies control. Like in Canada, we have Health Canada, have to approve it also before it gets to public. So my estimation, my estimation, when we said it's gonna be approved and they're gonna approve not through the regular approval, it's gonna be through the emergency approval. You know, there is okay. emergency because there is a need Understood. of it. So they're yeah. trying to expedite things, but that will not be based on, you know, we will not like, you know, waited for the safety or the efficiency of the vaccine. So that will be reviewed carefully, but we're gonna give it as an emergency. The Pfizer guy said it's expected to be the third week of November. We're already there. It didn't happen yet. Yeah, but so, Expected in the next maybe few weeks. I don't know. And, and that's and, and, governments and, you know, approval, you know, bodies like FDA, Health Canada. And in your opinion, if, if the vaccine is uh, effective and it shows its efficacy and they start to do mass vaccinations, um, even with everything you see right now, when do you think things could possibly go back to normal? in terms of these uh, social distancing, mask wearing, uh, all of these things, when would life turn back to normal? I think that's what most people want to know. How long is this going to take? So this is something guessing. Now, we are guessing from an expert point of view. First, I believe, I believe this will be a seasonal virus. It's going to be like influenza, you know? And uh, from time to time, you'll have few cases here and there. So vaccination will help, will help. So I'm expecting the next warm season, which is next summer, we'll know it by, by you know, fact at that time. If, because at that time, because the first quarter of 2021 and the second quarter, depending who's the country, you know, you know it's Canada, USA, depending who, who's, you know, for example, Pfizer will probably, you know, it's, it's an American company. In, co uh, in cooperation with biotech is the german company to do their vaccine so if you are an american company who's going to get the vaccine first americans yes it, it makes sense makes sense so, uh, makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. so yeah. it's going to take time on their website it's going to be 50 million doses in 2020 because the end of it now we are and they are promising i, I don't remember the number is it 1.3 or 1.7 billion doses in 2021 Yes. Okay. So that's, so a, that's a huge amount. Get, get anything in 2020 or late 2020 is going to be the Americans through Pfizer one. You know, if, if we're going to have anything as Canadian and other countries, if we are lucky, we're going to have it the first quarter of 2021. So, and by the way, the Pfizer one, they said it needs a certain, you know, 
freezers. We call them minus 80 freezers. There are certain freezers, they go up to, you know, down to, let's call it, minus 80. There's a very specific one to save the vaccine, you know, on them. So and, you need that uh, infrastructure. Because the vaccine needs minus 70. Wow. So all that infrastructure has to be there. See, this is, yeah, see, this is infrastructure. So sometimes, oh, it's ready, but okay. For you as Canadian or any other countries, if they're going to receive it, they have to transport it and transportation in these freezers and keep them in these freezers until being given to human beings, you know? So these logistics, this for the Pfizer one, we are lucky for the Moderna and Oxford doesn't need these requirements. So see, every, every vaccine has its own glitch. Although Moderna and Pfizer, they have the same technology in making the vaccine, which is the new technology, which depends on the uh, RNA of the virus. It's a new technology, by the way. So they are trying it, and this is how it is. The export one uses the same technology, which is the RNA, which is the nucleolic acid, I know how to pronounce it in English, nucleolic acid of the virus itself. But the export one, they use a vector to put it in another, you know, uh, I call the transport, it's another virus inside it to put it in somebody's body to let the immune system, you know, uh, try itself on it. So this, every one of them have a little bit different than the other, you know, technology. But these guys, they're all using a new technology. That the Russian one, which is also all of these guys now in phase three, by the way, and all of them are almost finishing. The Russian one, no, use the old technology in doing the virus. One of the old technologies, which is using, you know, part of the virus to put it on, we call it uh, adenovirus, another virus. They put it inside and to make the body learn on it and this is an old technology they so they don't use the rna technology or the nucleic acid technology which is the new technology uh, and also the russians say the same thing they have efficiency 90 something it's safe everybody claiming that but we at the end we need the published data so we can judge that you know at the end and Believe me, all, you know, all the countries are concerned and nobody will release any vaccine except if it is proven that it is a very safe and efficient vaccine. So it's possible, uh, optimistically, uh, things could go back to normal next summer or pessimistically. I hope so. It, I hope yeah. so. And the presence of these vaccinations. Yes. Because, you know, people now immune because I told you, either you get it naturally, the immunity, or you get it through the vaccine to get the herd immunity. What's the herd immunity? Herd immunity, if most of us got it already, yes. with immunity, vaccine, or naturally, then I'm going to protect you. So if me and Tarek got it or vaccinated, then we sit with Yusuf, the third guy with us in the interview, we will not infect him or even transport the infection to him. You get it? The concept, that's the herd immunity concept. Because to infect Yusuf, either I'm going to be having the infection or transport from another guy, get the infection again. But if I'm immune, I will not infect him. That's the herd immunity concept. So I think, well? yes, yes, you have. And I think right now, 
uh, as you said, observe all the social distancing protocols, the, the hand washing for 20 seconds at least, and the, the mask wearing ongoing even while the vaccine is, is being administered because just to keep everyone's protection, uh, people that have older people like parents and grandparents at home that are older and yeah. immunocompromised and, and have health issues, underlying health issues that we should just keep all these measures, uh, even while the vaccine is uh, going to be administered likely in the new year uh, until possibly... Uh, can, can I add know. something here? Even sure. if the vaccine are there, when we said efficiency, 90%, what meaning that? Like 90%, so if there is 100 people vaccinated with that vaccine, 90% of them will be protected. 10% still going to have COVID-19. So if it's it? 10 million so people... having these precautions, the sure. simple one, wash your hands, mask, and keep social distancing, I, in my opinion, should be continue a little bit until we see what's going on till the next summer, at least. And see from there how we can, you know... Maybe we'll have a li little bit ease on things. Maybe flights going to start to go, you know, back and forth from Canada. But still, I think these precautions should continue until we know the statistics and where we are heading. Although I wasn't diagnosed or Yusuf wasn't diagnosed, but we had the, the symptoms, Yusuf isolated, I isolated, and, uh, and obviously you isolated and you were tested and you were verified that you had the coronavirus. Now, I've heard that uh, if you've had the coronavirus, that you develop antibodies and uh, that can make you resistant to uh, infection again. Is that the case or can you get infected again by another strain of the coronavirus uh, in the absence of a vaccine? So for that, we're still learning about it. And the coronavirus, the old corona, the whole family, when you get infected, we are saying that you're going to get immunity for one to two years from that virus. But in this family, the COVID-19, it's a new. I cannot say it's gonna be protective for two, one, one to two years because we didn't reach that time. But my feeling is gonna follow the same family. I think you will get immunity from one to two years, the same thing. But I cannot prove it until one to two years back with people who got it and proven to get, to got it like me and didn't have the vaccine and we follow them up. If we reinfected again, then we know how long is this immunity. This is a one way. So I can say from inside, I'm more comfortable that COVID-19 will follow its family and people will get immunity one to two years. If you ask me the other question, so I got COVID-19, can I be reinfected again? Yes, there is people who got it like sooner, sooner than the one or two years. We have reported cases in the literature. They are talking about few people who reinfected again and proven. It's not easy, by the way, to prove you reinfected again. For example, how to prove? If you remember, I said there is people, the infection stay in their nose cells for two to three months even, and there is key positive. So if I get symptoms today, you test me, then in two months from now, I get another virus maybe, then you swap me and you find me positive. Am I reinfected again? I'll say no. Maybe it is, we call it false positive. It stays positive from the first infection. So how we can know? It's not easy to prove. 
So in my case, I got infected on the 23rd of March. I get a positive test done. See, the first one was even false. We call it negative. The one on the 25th, it was. I have it, but probably wasn't done right or the technical, you know, personal, you know, personal error or whatever it's happened or the lab error. So it was false negative. So when I got it on the 31st of March, I get positive. But in the last month, I got tested, I'll say how many times. Before going to Kuwait by two days, I got tested negative. On arrival on the Kuwait airport, they test me, I was negative. After a week from that, I tested negative to get uh, from isolation. Before coming to Canada by two days, I get tested. So I have four negative. So definitely, I don't have any leftover of the virus or infection from my, you know, March infection. So if I get any symptoms or no symptoms and I have a positive test now, this is a reinfection. So that very scenario, I said, it's not easy to, to, to confirm because you need to have negative tests in the middle before having. So one of the cases which in the literature of reinfection, a person from Hong Kong who gets infected way early in the uh, epidemic, I don't remember the month, but he got it in, in Hong Kong. He's a businessman. Then in June or July, he traveled to Spain. And he came back to Hong Kong. He was asymptomatic. But there in Hong Kong, they're very strict. They test everybody who go through the airport coming to Hong Kong. They test him as a screening, like Kuwait, where they did for me. And he came positive. And they were suspecting, is that a leftover or it's a new infection? And these guys, they were like, you know, they were keeping the first swab still with them in the bank and they check the nucleic acid, the RNA from the first infection with the second positive one, and they find it different on, on the structure. So they confirm it is a new infection, although he was asymptomatic. See, when I say it's difficult to, you know, to prove, because I don't think so we are doing this in Canada. We don't keep the same first swab. So to my knowledge, my March one is gone. So how we can compare it with a new RNA virus to see if it is the same one or it is a new one. But in my case, you know, if I have any positive one now, I think it's a new one because I have few negative in the middle. So, and there is another case they call it in the literature called Arizona. And that guy, by the way, he was fine with the second infection. There is another young guy in Arizona, they call it Arizona case. He got infected also in the beginning of the epidemic or pandemic. And he was doing well at the first infection. It was mild symptoms. Then down the road, a few months, he get very sick. And they don't know why. They swap him again. They found him to have a positive COVID-19. Again, is it from the beginning? Is it, is it over? So they test the gene of these two, you know, the, the RNA sequences from the both tests because they kept also the first test on that university and they found it different. So they prove it's a reinfection. So, but when we see this happen, it's in a handful of people. So reinfection again, that prove it's happened, but it's very rare. And by the way, the, that Arizona case was more sick. He didn't die. He was more sick in the second infection. So even if you ask me, is it gonna be the second infection to be mild or nothing or be more sick? I don't know because we still have not a lot of evidence about that. So I'm more worried about people getting infected the first time. 
get infected the first time, not the second time because it did happen, but it's very rare. So let's just not get infected the first time. Be cautious with yourself. And from inside myself, I got infected by COVID-19 and I feel I'm immune because I did my antibody test and came positive. But is that antibody, even if you have antibody, also you were as a specialist like me, is that antibody level is enough to protect you? Because the quality and the quantity of these antibody needed to protect you. For example, I give another example to be able to understand. You can have an antibody for hepatitis B, but we know a, a thin international unit of the antibody and more can protect you, but not less than 10. So you need a booster to boost your antibodies to get. So that's really the concept of the antibodies. You need the quantity and the quality of the antibody to protect you. So all of these about COVID-19, the antibody, we're still learning about it. Still, but if you ask me, yeah, if you if you get infected, you should feel from inside more comfortable. I get it the natural way, and I'm now protected if you have it. But that doesn't prevent you, or I advise you to keep wearing the mask, social distancing, and wash your hands. Treat yourself as not infected, but from inside feel feel happy that you got infected, you got the immunity now. But your practice, you should use the preventive measure, which is do your best not to get infected. Keep, like you and you and Yusuf, Sarah, can you, you should continue doing that, just in case you might be the rare person who's gonna be reinfected again, and you don't know that, and maybe reinfected again, you will be like the Hong Kong case. It's a mild symptoms, but you will transmit it to a person, your elders, which will be more affected by it. You get it? The concept. Yeah. So you should also use your precautions, even if you are infected again, like me. And when I go in public and things, I wear masks and things. Treat myself as non-infected before. But from inside, I'm I'm happy. I'm I'm wearing it. But I think, oh, I'm safe. I'm safe, not to freak out. But also, you know, be cautious to protect others. And you know, when you go in public and places or sky train, people doesn't know your history or you have it again. You know. So wearing a mask gives them this reassurance and confidence you are protecting them. So it's also it's a it's a, a psychological responsibility, a psychological, a psychological thing. Yeah. For for because, others. You know, if you go there without a mask, they don't know your history. They think you are careless. Or yes. you know, you got agreed. Even now with the new rules, maybe you get fined and things. Nobody knows your history, you know. So it's better to be like other people. Wear your mask and show them you are a responsible person and make them feel this confident and they are protected because you protect me and I'll protect you. This feeling we're all in the same community have, should have it. Thank you very much, Dr. Osama. I know we've had a very educational and informative discussion and really I think it's gonna help. Hopefully I learned a lot of things from you this last hour and I really appreciate you taking your time to share your, your, your knowledge and your expertise, which is very rare about this topic. And, uh, so, and I, I think I just our... let's add from Islamic point of view, you know, Berber is to be good for your parents, yeah? Yes. Yeah, so to be very before is to be good to your parents, all people, is to be with them, get close to them. Some people kiss their heads, hands, and, you know, even, you know, foreheads. But now your better is to get away from that. Don't do it. If you want to do better for your parents, be nice to them. Don't get close to them. In this season, at least. 
because you don't know at one point you might be infected or you are carrying infection and you are one of these guys we call them asymptomatic then you go and you know kiss them or kiss their hands or forehead and things it's, it's dangerous you might give them a disease which might be fatal to them because they are at higher risk of having that so bear in this season if you want to be a good guy to your parents just don't shake their hands or kiss them at this season keep this two meter distance if you want to go and meet them wear your mask wash your hand and keep the distance with them and and you brought up a great point i think because people have been doing this for so many months people have a fatigue they're apathetic and they're like when is this going to be over so now the recommendation is be vigilant uh, keep doing yes. it keep doing it thank you dr osama Thank you so much, and uh, looking forward to seeing you after the pandemic. Thank you again. Alice Bonta, reward you for all your your knowledge and and sharing it with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you guys. I'm honored. Thank you. Mm